So they say that hitting a major league fastball is the hardest thing to do in any of the professional sports. Just the, the skill and the timing and everything that has to go in that, just to connect with that ball and, and get a hit is one of the hardest things that there is to do. Um, which is what makes this story so incredible, right? Not only was Babe Ruth able to hit the ball, he was able to actually call out the individual place in the stands where he was going to send that home run before the pitch ever came across the plate, right? It's just an incredible feat. In fact, it's so incredible that over the years, lots of people have said, well, no, 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 I'm sure it didn't happen that way. It was probably different. You know, maybe he was just pointing at the pitcher and was, you know, saying something mean to him. But for the sake of argument this morning, let's just say that it did happen that way because it's a much better story if it happens that way. But just just imagine for a minute what that instance, what that, that occurrence would have done to you and your heart and your soul if you were one of Babe Ruth's teammates, right? Imagine you're on the Yankees it's the next game, it's the fourth game of the World Series, and you get towards the end of the game, it's the bottom of the ninth, you're down by a run, but there's two men on, and you're nervous, you're wondering, you know, if, if the Cubs win this one, does the, does the momentum swing, do we lose the series, and you're there in the dugout, and Babe Ruth is getting ready to, to bat, and he grabs his bat, and he walks down the aisle, and to each person on the team, he looks them in the eye and says, don't worry, I'm going to knock these two guys in on the first pitch, we're going to win this game. My guess is you would have all the confidence in the world that he could deliver on that promise. Because the day before, you watched him promise to do something impossible and deliver on that one. Right? And the basic idea right, is that if somebody can promise the impossible and then actually deliver on that promise, then if they were to promise something that just seemed hard, you could have confidence that they could pull that one off too. Right? If they can do the impossible, they can come through on any promise that might make. Now, what I want to ask you to do is just sort of keep that idea in mind as we turn in the Bible to 1 Corinthians 15, right? You can turn there in, in any format of the Bible that you brought with you. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning or if you're, you're kind of new to the Bible, you're not sure where to find 1 Corinthians in there, somewhere in a seat around you is a red Bible and you can open it up and turn to the page number that's listed on the screen and we'll get there in just a second. Now, this morning, we're in a teaching series where we're looking at the, the real difference that the reality of the resurrection can make in each of our lives. Uh, how it, this event that happened so long ago, how it actually changes the way that we live and think and act and decide on a day-to-day -day basis. And if you were here last Sunday, Adam kicked that off in a, a great way. He talked about how the resurrection helps us live victoriously. How because of the reality of the resurrection, we can face struggles and temptations in our lives and we can have victory over them because the risen Christ is alive and at work in us. And it was such a good and encouraging sermon. In fact, if you weren't here last week, this is what I want you to do. I want you to ignore me for the next 45 seconds. I want you to get your phone out and whatever app it is that you use to find podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, whatever it is, pull it out right now. And go ahead and go and find Redeemer Covenant Church, download Adam's sermon, and listen to it this week. It's going to be worth your time. It is such a shot of encouragement that we all need. And, and this morning, I just want to, now after 45 seconds, you have to come back, just so you know. Um, this morning, I just want to kind of build on that by talking about a di another difference the resurrection makes, about how we can live confidently, right? How we can live confidently in our lives. And, and it's something, if you stop and think about it, living with confidence is something that we all want. I mean, all of us want to live our life in such a way that we can have confidence in the decisions that we make, 
right, in, in the, the priorities that we have, in the people that we trust, right? We want to know, can we really put our faith and trust in the things that we want to put our faith and trust in? Are we making the decisions that affect our life on a strong and a solid foundation? And, and you see our desire for this all over the place. This is sort of raise your hand time. So how many of you guys, when you go to Amazon, right, before you click buy, how many of you have ever looked at the product and then scroll down and read through some of the product reviews, right, to see what other people thought about it? Yeah, and, and we do that because our level of confidence in the product can go up when we see that other people have had a good experience with it, or it might go down when we see that other people think it's a piece of garbage and we might move on and buy a different version of what we're looking for. Or you see the same thing with restaurants, right? You want to try a new restaurant. How many of you, before you try a new restaurant, would look it up on Yelp and see how many stars it gets? Or, or would talk to a friend maybe who has eaten at that restaurant and say, you know, is it, is it worth our time to go there? See, we're always looking for ways to figure out how do we have confidence in the decisions that we make. So the real question then is how does all of this, this idea of confidence and the resurrection and Babe Ruth and 1 Corinthians 15, how does this all come together? Um, well, it doesn't. <laughs> no, it actually does. It does in a really simple way. And this is the idea that I want us to drill down on today. It, Babe Ruth, right, when he walked into the batter's box, when he called his own shot, he made a promise that was absolutely impossible to deliver on, and then he delivered on it. And as you read and study the life of Christ, you realize that he did exactly the same thing over and over and over again. If you were to read the different biographies of Jesus that we have in the New Testament, you would see that time after time, he makes this incredible promise. He'll say it to anybody who'll listen. He says, I am going to be killed. I'm going to die, but don't worry. Three days later, I'm coming back to life. Right? That is a seemingly impossible thing to promise. And yet it was a real theme of his teaching, so much so that right after he died, right when he died and he's in the tomb, the enemies of his that put him there, they're worried that his disciples might try to come and steal the body so it looks like he delivered on that promise. So if you look in Matthew, there's this interesting story where the chief priests and the Pharisees, they go to Pilate, who's the Roman sort of head of the government at the time, and they say, look, 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 we remember how that imposter Jesus, we remember that when he was alive, over and over again, he would say this kind of thing, after three days, I'll rise. So could you please put some guards on the tomb so his disciples can't work behind the scenes and make it look like he actually pulled this off? Right? This promise, this promise to do the impossible and come back to life was really a common theme in his teaching. And this is why that's important for us today. Right? Jesus did this so often. When he promised that he would die and be brought back to life, he was calling his own shot. He was promising something that on the surface seemed absolutely impossible. But if you can just imagine what his earliest followers felt like when they saw him walking around a few days later, the confidence that that would have given them as they stopped and thought, wow, if he can promise that and pull that off, all of the other promises that he've made, they're, they're not nearly as hard to do as this impossible one. We can have confidence in those things as well. We can trust every single promise that he's made. And that is exactly how the early Christian leaders understood the resurrection. It's why they thought it was so important. So there was an early Christian leader, a man named Paul, who wrote a bunch of letters. And in one of them, in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 15, he talks for quite a while about the resurrection, about how important it is and the difference it makes in our lives. In fact, he has so much to say about it that 1 Corinthians 15 is one of the longest chapters in the entire Bible. And in this, he, he's really going on, he's trying to set the stage and show them just how critically important the resurrection is, that everything rises and falls on it. So this is how he kicks that off, right, in verse 1. 
He says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. And then look at how key this is, getting it right. He says, by this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Right? This is so critical. If you get this right, you get everything right. But if you don't, otherwise, you've believed in vain. That's kind of his opening shot to this chapter. He's getting their attention. He's saying, I am getting ready to tell you something of critical importance. And in the next verse, like just to make it even more clear, he says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. This is central to what you need to know. And then right after that colon, you see his summary of the gospel in a nutshell. Christ died for our sins, just like God promised that he would. He came back to life just like he predicted that he would. That's his summary of the saving work of God in Jesus Christ right there. He died just like they said would happen. He came back to life just like he promised would happen. And Paul realizes that for people who are are new to the faith, who maybe didn't see Jesus wandering around, that this is a difficult pill to swallow. Because it's not like life and death worked differently 2,000 years ago. I mean, people stay dead today when they're dead. Just like 2,000 years ago, they usually stayed dead when they were dead. So what he does is he starts then to list out for them the names of lots and lots of people that actually saw Jesus Christ walking around, talking, doing normal things after he came back to life. So he says he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the 12, the apostles. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, right? I think he throws that in there to say, hey, in case you don't believe me, why don't you go talk to some of the hundreds of eyewitnesses who saw this too, and maybe their stories will convince you. Though he does acknowledge that some have fallen asleep, and and fallen asleep is just Paul's way of kind of saying that they've died. It's sort of a nice way to say it. He says, then he appeared to James. Now, James is the the younger half-brother of Jesus. And then to all the apostles, and last of all, Paul says, he appeared to me also. Now, again, I think Paul's putting this list in here because he recognizes there are probably going to be some people who've got questions. Did this really happen? And this is Paul's way of saying, look, if you want to get a second opinion or a third or a fourth or a 500th opinion, go and talk to the people who were there. Now, on a side note, if you are here this morning and you wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, you're probably sitting there and you're thinking this resurrection thing, I'm not convinced that it happened. I've got some real doubts about that. And honestly, I think that's a very appropriate thing for you to think and believe if you're not convinced that Jesus is who he says he is. Because again, there is nothing in our daily experience that makes us think that somebody who is dead can come back to life. And yet, it's such an important thing for Paul that he really does try to dig into it and talk about why it's important. And now, I'm not going to try to convince you this morning, if that's the camp that you're in, that the resurrection really happened. But I do, if that's you, I just, just want to sort of draw your attention to one thing that Paul is doing here that I think is kind of interesting. When Paul is really trying to make his best argument that the resurrection really happened, he doesn't say, look, there are lots and lots of dusty Old Testament prophecies that said that Jesus would come back to life. God promised it would happen a long time ago, and because God, God promised it, that's what I'm basing all of this on. And I think those are true and they're valid, but when Paul is trying to make his most convincing argument about why Jesus really came back, why we can put our confidence in that, he doesn't point to these old things that that some people, maybe who didn't grow up in the Jewish tradition, they wouldn't put any stock and value in that anyway. So instead, Paul does what any judge would want to see, what any prosecutor or defender would want to do. He said, I want you to talk to the eyewitnesses about it. 
I want you to talk to the people who are really there. You see, Paul didn't get convinced that Jesus really came back to life because of what he read. That prepared him for that truth. But Paul was convinced that Jesus came back to life because he saw him. Because he had an encounter with the living, breathing, risen Christ. Because he knew that there were hundreds and hundreds of people who had seen him, who had talked with him, who had interacted with him. And that was the proof that became so convincing for Paul. And and what I think is just sort of a brilliant little inclusion, one of the people that he includes in this list uh, of having been convinced that Jesus is who he says he is, is James, right? The, The little brother of Jesus. Now, at the beginning, James, Jesus' family, when he was on earth and teaching, they thought he was crazy when he started making these claims about himself. And yet something happens. Something happens that by the end of his life, James is convinced that his brother is God. He's convinced that he is who he says he is. And he is willing to lay down his life and die as a martyr for the sake of following his brother. Just stop and think about this for a second. How many of you have a sibling? Anybody? Okay. What would it take for your brother or sister to convince you that they are the living God? Yeah, I mean, they're not going to do that, right? I mean, I've got an older sister, Tammy. She's about two years older than me. This is a picture of us as a kid. I'm, I'm in the wagon, just so you know. I'm, I'm not in the tankini there. Um, <laughs> but if I were to go up to my sister and try to convince her, Tammy, the, the, the clouds parted, and God has revealed to me that I am his son, I'm the Messiah, I am the living God, she would say, there is no way you're the living God. I saw when you were born. I remember what a jerk you were in high school, okay? I dragged you around in a little red wagon, right? And God doesn't ride in little red wagons. So just think about how convincing at some level it is that Jesus' brother had an encounter with the risen Christ that led him to think, oh my God, literally. You are who you say you are. So much so that he became convinced and gave the rest of his life to the point of death to follow him. You see, Paul's not just putting these names in here so that people who've got doubts, you know, have something to do. He's giving them here so that those people can do the investigative work for themselves. They can talk to the people who were there. They can find out if the claims that Christ has made are convincing. And if you're here this morning and you've got doubts about any of this, that's what I want to challenge you to do as well. Look at the historical texts. Look at the evidence. Look at the voices of the eyewitnesses who are there and just see what God maybe wants to say to you in that process. Because what we believe about the resurrection is so important. It's central to who we are and how our faith plays itself out in day-to-day life. In fact, that's the whole point that Paul's driving at in this chapter. When you jump ahead a little bit to verse 17 and in some of the verses that Rob read for us, you see just how important it is. Because if the resurrection didn't happen, we're in trouble. It says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is useless. In fact, you're still in your sins, right? Then all of those who've fallen asleep in Christ are lost. That is, the people who have already died and put their faith in Christ, they've got no real hope for a future beyond this world because Jesus was lying, right? He's not trustworthy. And then look at this final line here. He says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. You see, that's this connection that Paul is driving at. For him, it is all about the resurrection. If the resurrection didn't happen, we are lost. 
If the resurrection didn't happen, we are the biggest suckers out there because everything about Jesus, everything he said, everything he taught, none of it's true and none of it is worth putting your faith and trust in. So if it didn't happen and we put our chips in there with Jesus, we lose it all. But, Paul says, but if the resurrection really did happen, if the resurrection really did happen, that absolutely changes everything about how we live. Because if he delivered on that, he can deliver on every other promise we make and we can live into those promises. And Paul obviously believes it did happen. In the very next verse, he says that, right? He jumps out and says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And that, that right there, that is the reason that we can live confidently. It's like Adam said last week, that is the reason that we can live victoriously. We can have confidence that every promise that God has made to us will be fulfilled because he pulled off the hardest one there was. And if he can do the impossible, any other promise, even if it looks difficult, is really not going to be that hard by comparison. So we can have confidence that he'll do it. And, and what I want to do this morning is just try and encourage you by reminding you of some of these other promises that God made. Promises that we can put our trust in and that we can take to the bank because of what happened when that tomb ended up empty. And the first one of those is actually found at the very end of this chapter. So you get all the way through the end of it, 58 verses into it. Paul has been going on and on and on about the importance of the resurrection. And then he sort of gets to this summary action statement. And he starts it off by saying, therefore, right? And therefore is one of those words that when it pops up, you, you kind of have to wonder what's going on here. Because therefore is a way of Paul saying, look, the little bit that I'm about to say is all based on everything that I just said here about how important the resurrection is. So he jumps right into it. He says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you, right? Have confidence. Live confidently. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know, you know, you know, you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And now that, the fact that our labor in the Lord is not in vain, that is a promise that we can take to the bank, right? When we give ourselves fully to God's work, to God's purposes, when we contribute our efforts to partner with God's spirit to go after his heart, it is not going to be in vain. And that's not because of anything that we do, but it's because of this incredible work that he did years ago when he brought Jesus back to life. That same power becomes alive and at work in us. Right, so when we give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord, that's when we see lives changed. That's when we can have confidence that families can be transformed. That's when we can live confidently and work confidently knowing that communities can be transformed even if we don't see any results right in the moment. Because sometimes, I mean, if we're honest, sometimes when we're doing the work of the Lord, we don't see results right away. In fact, sometimes we give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord and at the end of the day, you think, I think we ended up three steps back from where we were. And that can be a discouraging thing, which is why, because of the reality of the resurrection, you need to grab onto this promise and hang on to it when those discouraging days come. Because we can trust that when we give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord, that work is not in vain. If he delivered on the big promise, he can deliver on this one as well. And that's why this Saturday, for example, when we go and we work in the Mark Twain neighborhood for Beautiful Day, we can leave at 12.30 that afternoon knowing that the work that we have done has made lasting differences in that community. There's lasting value there for God's purposes, even if we don't, even if we don't see results in the moment. Because we may leave, and it may be easy to walk away and say, you know, what did we really accomplish? I mean, we just played sports for a few hours. 
We just kind of tick some things off their to-do list. So it could be easy to leave kind of, you know, a little let down because you didn't see 7,000 people fall to their knees and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But if God really came back to life out of that tomb, then we can have confidence that this is true as well, that even if we don't see results in the moment that God is at work because God takes our little efforts, he takes the seeds that we plant and the work that we do and he bathes them in his power so that his results get done in his timing. That is a promise that you can have confidence in today and every day. Another example for you, I love that promise, but there's another one that comes to mind that just really is an encouragement to me. You know, as, as Jesus was preparing to leave uh, this earth, he was about to get arrested, and he's meeting with his, his closest friends, and they can tell something's not right, something's up. And they're anxious, and they're worried, and they're a mess, and they're in a bad spot. And Jesus says this to them. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. What a promise. He says, I don't give to you as the world gives. And then he says, do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. How many of us need to hang on to this promise today? Right, because if Jesus came up out of that grave, then this is true as well. God's peace is available to us. So much in our world is designed to take away the peace that God wants us to have. Right? You can't turn on the news or look at the stock ticker without feeling anxiety rise inside of you. Right? How, how many of us, maybe even this week, you, you think about a relationship and you're, you're anxious because it's not going the way you want it to. You're not sure how it's going to end up. Right? You're not sure where college is going to be for you. You're not sure if there's a college that will even take you. Right? They took me, so there's hope for you, okay? But really, if you stop and think about it, so many things can give us anxiety and worry. Right? Maybe you've been reading the headlines and you realize that Williams is laying off a thousand employees company-wide. And you think, oh my gosh, what is that gonna do to our city? What is that gonna do to our family? What's that gonna do to me, to, to my job? Maybe you're, you're wrestling with those questions. And again, when the anxiety comes up, you just need to stop and think, wait a minute, wait a minute, this is not how Jesus wants me to live. Because of the resurrection, I can live confidently. God's peace is available to me and I want to take that promise and grab onto it and hold onto it today for all it's worth because I do not have to be afraid. I do not have to be afraid. God and his peace are with me. Another great promise for you to remember. I know a lot of you, so I know that, that some of you in the recent years and months, you've, you've lost people who are very near and dear to you. Others of us I know are, are in the camp where that's just right around the corner. Maybe people that we really care for are sick. Maybe the, the doctor's report came in and it's not good. They don't have long to live. That's really a situation that my family has been in this week. Just a long, long time family friend of, of my wife's side of the family is in the very final days, they say, of her struggle with cancer. And this woman has been like the best friend to my mother-in-law for 50 years. And as we start thinking about what is the world gonna look like without Miss Virginia in it? Like the, the emotions that come up with that are pretty raw. They're pretty hard to deal with, right? Nobody likes to experience grief and loss, but it comes to all of us. So if that's you, if someone's face is in your head right now as we talk about this, if you are feeling grief or you know it's coming, I just want you to hang on this promise. Hang on to the promise that we serve a God who tells us that we do not grieve as the rest of mankind, who have no hope, 
For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, right? There's that foundational truth. He came up out of the tomb. Therefore, things are different. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. Grief, this lack of hope, that touches all of us at times. But the incredible promise of the resurrection is that we do not have to grieve like those who have no hope. Because if Jesus really did die and rise again, then we can have absolute 100% confidence that the second part of this promise is going to be delivered on as well. That someday, those of us who die in him will be brought back together and be reunited in a place where there is no pain, there is no suffering, there is no cancer, there are no accidents, there is nothing that pulls us apart from each other. See, that is the promise that we have. And we don't just believe that, right? If you're not a follower of Jesus, it's easy to look at this belief and say, well... It's just sort of a psychological crutch that those Christians have to kind of help them get through hard times. No, we don't believe this because it just sort of makes us feel better on the inside. Instead, we look at what God says in his word and he says, I will die and come back to life. And we see, wow, he did that. And we think, well, if he does that, we can believe anything else that he says, including this promise about being reunited with loved ones who have died. So that's why we have confidence in that. Not because of what it does for us, but because this is part of the fundamental nature of the reality of the world that we live in because of what our God has done. See, we don't have to grieve like the rest of the world grieves. But we also don't have to live like the rest of the world lives. When we think about other things that we struggle with, if you're here and you're facing illness or health challenge or you've got worry about the future, you're afraid of what may right around the corner, I just want you to remember that we serve a God who keeps all of his promises. And one of the things that he told us to do, one promise he told us to act on, was when he said, be strong and courageous. He said, do not be terrified because of them. Whatever that them is for you, whatever it is you may be facing that you're worried about or anxious about, he says, don't be afraid or terrified of them. For the Lord, your God, goes with you. And listen to the promise. He will never leave you. He will never leave forsake you. It doesn't matter what is in your life that is bringing up fear or anxiety for the future. We walk and we claim and we live in the promise that God will be with us so we do not need to be afraid. And that means if you look at the economy and you're worried about how much is going to be in the checkbook and you don't know if you've got enough to cover the bases, we can have confidence that God will take care of us because we follow a God who promised that he would meet all of our needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. See, we don't grieve the way the world grieves. We don't mourn the way they mourn. We don't have to worry the way they worry. We don't have to be anxious about the things that provoke anxiety in them. Our lives can be different for one reason. Jesus Christ is not dead. He promised that he would come through on this impossible claim to come back, and he did. And because of that, we can live and love in confidence in every other area because every other promise that God ever made will come true a thousand times in our lives. We can have confidence in that because he delivered on the big one. In just a moment, we're going to close our service out by singing a final song together. Uh, It's called Anchor, and we actually introduced it last week. Um, But if you're not familiar with the song, if you don't know the words, I just would encourage you to stop and listen to them, to let them be sort of a, a meditation for you. Because we're singing this song in this series 
because it reminds us of these incredible promises that we have in God, that he will be faithful to deliver them. So as we sing, I just would encourage you to think about what God may be wanting to say to you today. As we prepare to do that, would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the incredible, incredible promises that we find in your word. First and foremost, Lord, is the promise that you will come back that you would come back to life. And God, it seems like the impossible thing. It seems like something that no one had ever done before or could ever do again. And yet, God, we believe that you delivered on that promise. And because of that, we trust that you can deliver on every other promise that we face. So God, whatever it is in our life that is provoking anxiety or worry or fear or any other thing, God, we just ask that you would remind us Remind us through the power of your spirit of the promises in your word of how we can live differently because of who you are and what you've done. God, come and speak to us. Give encouragement to our hearts as we follow you. We ask these things in your name. Amen.